Hello and welcome to Corpus Cast, the podcast all about corpus linguistics and what it can do for society. Each episode, we'll explore how the study of language in large corpora is used to tackle challenges in the world relating to education, health and technology, among many others. So sit back, relax and join us as we discover the ways in which corpus linguistics is shaping the future of the study of language. I'm your host, Robbie Love, and I'm a corpus linguist at Aston University. Now, today's topic is the role of corpus linguistics in the study of language acquisition, how people learn language, and uh, interestingly, how people can be helped to learn language. The process of language acquisition, both in terms of the acquisition of a first language or, or languages in infancy and childhood, and the learning of additional languages in any and all stages of life are fascinating. And this is a much researched phenomenon that sits at the intersection of fields, including linguistics, psychology, education, and others. Part of this area of study involves looking at the language that is being learned in the case of today's guest and their work in English, in order to identify features that may be easier or harder to pick up in the process of acquisition, a concept known as learnability. Uh, and this is one of the many contributions that Corpus Linguistics makes in this area of study. So my guest today is Dr. Phoebe Lin, Assistant Professor in English in the Department of English and Communication at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Dr. Lin is an applied linguist specializing in phonology, vocabulary, corpus linguistics, and English language teaching and learning. And her research examines natural speech processing and its role in vocabulary acquisition using a range of methods, including controlled experiments, of course, corpus linguistics, statistical modeling, and software development. So today we'll be uh, focusing on Phoebe's research into uh, what's known as formulaic language. We'll find out all about what that means and its acquisition in second language learners of English, a topic about which Phoebe has uh, several publications, including the book, The Prosody of Formulaic Sequences. So I'm very excited to welcome to Corpus Cast our guest for today's episode, Dr. Phoebe Lin. Hello, welcome Phoebe, it's great to speak to you. Hi Robbie, nice to see you. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's it's great to get the chance to to have a chat with you about you and your your research. Um, all sorts for us to get through. So we'll we'll get started uh, with a question that I always uh, open uh, the episode with, uh, asking all of my guests about corpus linguistics. What does corpus linguistics mean to you? That's a difficult question because, uh, and also a very interesting. Because to me, right, the textbook definition would be like corpus linguistics is a research area or an academic subject to our students. But to me, surprisingly, I think um, corpus linguistics is a community. Um, it's a bunch of people that I know. Uh, like, and these people, to me, I think they are resourceful, they are open, they love technology, they are wise people, they are problem solvers. And I think. I have very fond memories of like corpus linguists, uh, when not like the people that I met at conferences. And I think um, they offer many solutions to problems. And one of the things uh, for me when I conducted corpus linguistics research was 
that uh, like you often need to find a corpus somewhere and um and sometimes having problems annotating corpus and uh like go to any corpus linguist they will just say like i like the people have asked for help like two of my asked for help would be the lancaster people like paul reason um and um and Andrew Hardy and Ben, they always said like, hey, uh, this is the solution to the problem. And I think to me, it's a bunch of people who are really helpful, willing to share resources. Um, like to me, I just aspire to be part of, like to be a worthy member of that community. So it's not a subject, it's not a subject, it's like who I want to be really. I love that. I, I love that uh, community aspect and, and... I think that's a that's a really nice way of of, of sort of framing it because I, I think you're right. Um, you know, we were just having a quick chat before we started recording and talking about all of our mutual uh, friends and colleagues in in the field and and how it really is this kind of global network of of, of colleagues in in this field. Um, I, I think you're you're being very humble. Uh, sort of talk about how you you want to be. Uh, a worthy member of of this community. I, I'm obviously not an, an arbiter of of, of, of that in, in any way, but I certainly regard you as as a, a member of, of this community. And I want to know more about how you became uh, a member of this this community. Uh, yeah. Your your academic journey. Um, yeah. Tell us about where where you studied, and and of course, um, what led you to to the role that you you have now as assistant professor at uh, Hong Kong Poly U. I, I am actually a member of the Nottingham Gang, as they say it. I think in Corpus Linguistics, there are several gangs. Uh, the Lancaster Gang or the Birmingham Gang. Or not, the... not literal gangs, you know, I don't no. think England is. Not that I know of. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. Maybe we could start one. But, uh, under the streets having fights. Uh, maybe. <laughs> and then there are US gangs, of course. Uh, like in the UK, these are the three major gangs. I think mm -hmm. that I belong to the Nottingham Gang. Um, so actually like the whole journey started quite interestingly because I actually, um, like I come from, I was, I was born in, and I grew up in Hong Kong and I went to Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, where, uh, I was taught by Professor Peter Sear, uh, the, uh, the researcher, the famous researcher doing research on task-based learning. And I was his supervisor uh, when I did my, uh, master's studies and it was him who introduced me to the work of uh, Pauline Foster uh, at UCL currently. Um, so uh, Professor Foster, Pauline, did research, conducted research on foreign language and then when I spoke with Peter Ian, uh, Peter about like what I should do for my master's uh, dissertation, he suggested that like why don't you do this and that was how I got hooked up <laughs> with like the whole thing and I have not left corpus linguistics and uh, and uh, from the language since. And so the journey was that I looked at Polly Foster's uh, research, which was the first ever study that got me started doing mm. language research since. And I thought, okay, this is a very interesting study. What it needs is like, like the study was great, but then it would have been so much better. Many problems could have been solved if we have access, had she got access to Compass. And then after doing the master's dissertations, I, I, I wanted to do a bit more uh, research. And so I sat up with Peter asking, what should I do? And then he said, like, 
there are literally two good studies and uh, good good there are two good universities in the UK where I could like further my research on like Greek language and spoken language and I applied to both and the best one accepted me and you know what that was and so I was just very pleased to be able to work with those same people and so since joining Northam University School of English you know like it was it is still very famous in terms of spoken uh copra and for language vocabulary research and that the reason why I chose to go to not only the is because in the old days if you want access to a corpus you have to be an insider and like you have to be an insider of Birmingham to use the Bank of English for example I thought okay I want access I thought the the problems facing the study by Professor Bob Foster was like the lack of access to corpus data so in order to solve that problem I went on to like not saying why they have to at that time I think for me uh like the biggest spoken corpus in English uh which is Kencode so I went back wanting to use Kencode for my PhD and back on a like new journey doing phonology and corpus linguistics together uh yeah so that was how it all started and I was supervised by uh Professor Sven Adults and I was part of the group led by Professor Ronald Carter um, and then I met the vocabulary people in the School of English and uh, Norbert, uh, Professor Norbert Sweet and then I had many good classmates and we started, we had a vocabulary reading group and so it was like, like within the game we did many things and so somehow the journey was totally shaped by Nottingham University I have to say yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I, I love how you use the word gang. I just have those amazing images of West Side Story. You know, yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Actually, you've given me an idea. You're called the Singlistics Musical. Uh, what next? Um, and 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 then of course you you eventually found your, yourself uh, your position at, at PolyU and and doing the research that you're doing in in uh, language acquisition, formulaic language. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll start to sort of slowly work our way into into this topic now um, because I'm I'm really interested to to hear about some of the, the the things that you've done and and the the fact that you are you know yes you're doing the 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 disciplinary research about language but you're also doing work on on um, producing you know tools and 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 uh, applications for people to use to explore so we'll we'll start to make our, our way through this. Um, so yes, l language acquisition broadly, um, obviously there's, there's all sorts of things as, as this podcast uh, is, is attempting to demonstrate with the various topics and the various guests, all sorts of applications of, of corpus methods. Um, and, and your work broadly defined is, is in the area of language acquisition. Um, what interests you about, about this? Uh, language acquisition. Like, first of all, I'm a, an English language learner. <laughs> like in Hong Kong, we spent like 20 years learning English. And so it's, it's a personal endeavor as much as, uh, like my research. So, um, what interests me about this topic? 
I suppose, like, I'm, I'm doing this research because I encountered problems with foreign language, with spoken language myself. And so I was trying to solve problems that I face, really. Oh, you, you mentioned uh, formulaic language, and I, I sort of introduced that that um, yeah. that term earlier on. We'll 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 talk about some of the topics in in language acquisition as well. But while we're here, what, yeah. what is formulaic language? Uh, what does what what does this encompass as as a kind of uh, set of of uh, features in in English? Of course, we be encompass like this. We are all familiar with the work of um, um, John C. Platt, Professor John C. Platt, and so his idioms principle and open choice principles, uh, open choice principle. Um, so basically, the work that I'm doing captures the one that he's like follows upon the work that he did um, in the domain of idioms principle. So idioms, like idioms, is the umbrella term, but I like tend to use the term for language instead to reflect the fact that I think there is a psycholinguistic perspective to our on public language, on phraseology. So um, there are many examples of um, public expressions from a language. Um, they are basically conventionalized lexical combinations. Um, they could be speech formulae, they could be like speech formulae would be things like first of all let me see you know and there could also be idioms like at the end of the rope skating on thin ice kill two words with one song and then there could be proverbs as they treat nine saves uh, saves nine and then sentence stands i was just wondering i don't suppose you, you would do something collocations multi-word units like there are many examples so like traditionally we thought of the word as the unit of analysis and the unit of language acquisition. But now, because of our awareness of formulaic language, we are trying to look at phrases and uh, expressions as the unit of analysis. Okay, so you, you mentioned uh, John Sinclair, of course, uh, who was at the, the University of Birmingham and sort of extending his 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 work. Um, so I suppose we're, we're, what we're dealing with here is um, the, the notion that we don't process language word by word no. necessarily, but but there are larger sort of units that that consist of maybe several words or even structures, um, but that we process them as essentially as a, as a single a single unit of meaning. Um, exactly. So this is this is really interesting. I, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of obviously a lot of research in in language acquisition. Um, it's it's taught uh, in in the UK on uh, the English language uh, curriculum um, at at A level uh, the last couple of years before uh, students might go to university and it's it's highly uh, theoretical in talking about uh, theories from decades ago earlier in the 20th century they talk about Bruner and Skinner and of course Chomsky universal grammar all of these ideas there's a, there's been a lot of you know, thought about what what happens in the brain when when people acquire a language. But are there still um, mysteries? I mean, you know, what 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 do we what do we what is it that we we don't know? Is there such a huge industry in you know English language teaching yeah. and trying to improve the the you know the process of learning language, making it easier and more accessible for people? And and your research, I think, contributes to that endeavor. 
Uh, what is it that you know? Is there still mystery? Ha has it been worked out? You know, ah, this is this is what happens, or is there still a lot that that isn't known yeah. about how we learn language? Unfortunately, I have to say, admit that actually there are more things that we don't know than things that we know, <laughs> and the and the situation is, and it's quite philosophical. Like the fact that like like if we know what we don't know, we already know. <laughs> well, we, like, we don't know, so we actually don't know what we don't know. And I think there are so many, like, there are so many mysteries and so few hands and or brains or, like, people work together to solve the problems. And to be honest, I think as researchers, we are just, like, like people have been learning languages for, like, as far as, like, people, there were people on Earth. Mm. And so people went on learning language without any research. And all we do as researchers was just trying to see, observe how things work. And hopefully we could do a little bit to improve the processes that based on data that we had. And uh, I think you mentioned like Skinner and all. And uh, just want to follow up on that. And there is a famous quote that I, that people might like to like to quote whenever they talk about formulaic language, like, uh, and which covers linguists have proved to be wrong. So Hinker back in 1994 said that virtually every sentence that a person utters or understands is a brand new combination of words appearing for the first time in the history of the universe. I think when we look at corpus data, we know how often people repeat, like just speak formulaically because like one people are lazy, like two because it's easier to process, like standard sentences. Like that, like like there there is a common way of referring to things, and like people stick with the like the usual way of saying things. Then like communication becomes a lot easier. Um, yeah. So like I think I think it was a mystery ages ago, like how people process language, but because of common linguistics, we know like this is no longer a mystery. We know that people do repeat a lot. Um, do, you th do you think um, Pinker, I mean, I see what you mean in, in that clearly we, we, we know for, through empirical work, looking at large samples of language data, that there's so much that is patterned and, and repeating uh, in, in what we do, but are, are these um, formulaic expressions, is, is there a limit in terms of, you know, yes, at, you know, the size of three or four or five words in length, there's an awful lot of repetition, but then very quickly, I, I imagine, you know, when I, when I talk to my students, occasionally I, I find myself in the, the horrible position of having to um, speak to students about, you know, plagiarism and, and because the, the similarity detection has found, you know, all of this matching text, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs and matching texts and have to have these difficult conversations where you're like, how did you write this yourself? You know, um, and, and a lot of that is on the basis of, you know, it would be very unlikely that by complete coincidence, you know, a student wrote a, a paragraph that's 30 words long in exactly the same way as this paragraph that already exists, right? So I suppose yeah. maybe from that perspective, uh, Pinker is, is right in that after, is there a sort of threshold where after that, yes, it does become very unlikely that people are repeating exactly the same 
uh, you know, string of words in, yeah. in a row. I think um, my do when we talk about um, formulaic language, we are talking about the phrase level or even clause level. Yeah. But then, like, the thing with plagiarism covers, that relates to the discourse level. Yeah. And yeah. people some statistics, like, how often do people repeat their phrases? Mm. Uh, according to research by... Um, uh, Beatrice Warren and another colleague, um, they have a famous paper back in 2010 on the Indian principle. Sorry, I should find the reference with you. It's okay, that's okay. Yeah, and it's like 50, about 50% of people's uh, speech, spontaneous speech, uh, consists of formulaic material. Yeah, so like if you translate that into like actual words, so half of the time people create something new, the other half of the time they just use some formulate ready-made, prefabricated material. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. I, I I understand. That's that's it's and and clearly therefore because there's so much of it, there is very very good reason to study it in the context of language learning because on that basis it must be a very important part of. The process of language learning to uh, to recognize and and uh, master the use of this formulaic language. Yeah, because if people don't use formulaic language, actually speaking, writing would be very uh, labor intensive. Can I use the term? Because you calculate, know, use grammar. Like think about what should I say next, and like stitch all the single words together based on grammar. And like, if there is a, an alternative where people can be lazy, just use ready-made sentences that they memorize, mm. they go a lot smoother, easier, mm. speaker easier on the listener. Um, and, and obviously, the, there's, I suppose, a distinction in this field between uh, what you might call L1 language yeah. learning and L2 language learning. So L1 being first language um, or languages, uh, that the the infant and the toddler and the young child as they're growing up is 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 learning, and then any additional languages that may be learned uh, at, at potentially any any stage in life. In terms of um, the, the 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 research and and the work around understanding how these processes work, um, presumably there are some differences, say between a baby uh, learning how to babble and and learning. Uh, vocabulary to somebody in their 50s deciding that they want to learn uh, Korean, for example, um, and attending classes and and, and acquiring an, an additional language. Yeah. I I think uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the past few years or decade was like one thing that we should remember is that for uh, first language learners are always successful. I've not yet seen a case of first language learners not being successful. Like, mm. and, uh, and they do it so spontaneously, without going to classes, without effort. And the case that you mentioned, that 50-year-old folks wanting to learn Korean for the first time, despite the effort that they put in, they will still be... They will still come across as unnatural or like a native-like. Mm. Uh, so for me, my there is a basic fundamental assumption in my research is like saying that 
first language learners are always successful, and second language learners may not be successful. Uh, there could be some things that we could do with when we help second language learners. Uh, then, like to like we, there must be something that we could possibly do to recreate the environment that first language learners experience, so that second language learners can also be more successful. So, comparison between what learners native like first language learners do and second language learners do is a core part of like what I do, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, that that that's interesting. And, and yeah. yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I hadn't really considered that. The biggest difference is that L1 language learning is essentially always successful. Um, yeah. I, 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 to my shame, I suppose, consider myself to be, well, I am monolingual. Um, I, I did uh, study French at school, um, but I, you know, didn't know anything about corpus linguistics at the time. And I, I, I doubt that the, the 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 materials in the class were informed by corpus methods at all so i i really didn't have any understanding that there were um structures that could be learned rather than essentially what i had in my head at the time the idea that i just had to learn every word one by one and try and remember them all individually and i was uh to no surprise unsuccessful in in becoming um anywhere near fluent uh in in french um so I, I, I appreciate that, you know, there clearly is a, a, a big difference, but I think there's a case, and of course, it would not be corpus cast without talking about corpus linguistics, clearly a case for the value of, of using corpus methods to, to help explore this. So with, with that in mind, in, in terms of your own research, uh, looking at formulaic expressions using, uh, among other methods, corpus linguistics, um, how how do how do uh, corpus methods help? You know what what sorts of data do you look at, and 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 what are you doing from a from a I suppose a a, a methodological perspective? I think um, like um, there are different parts to my work. There is the psycholinguistic part. There is the corpus part, and hopefully my psycholinguistic research, my experiments would in, like have been informing the corpus work that I am doing. So ho I'm hoping always that there is, a, there is a theoretical basis to what I do. So the corpus research that I'm doing is not number crunching. It's hope, like I hope, but because I came up with a theory, a hypothesis uh, in my 2012 paper, and it was the sort of the vision or the plan as you, as, 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 as one month put it, that I try to like prove that like the thing that I've been doing is to try to prove the hypothesis right. And then, so this is some research I finished a few years back. And so given that my hypothesis was right, so I was trying to come up with tools that help people like solve that problem. So mm. the kind of corpus that I build. Obviously, um, in the past years, in the, in the past years, in the past, I've been using other people's corpora, and I know that you are interested in the philological corpora that I've been using. Uh, but before that, I like I use other people's corpora, and I also build my own corpora. One of the things that I built was um, a YouTube corpus, and actually, a tomb corpora that I built. Um, 
there is a dynamic one that is like like I built a corpus of YouTube videos as they as YouTube videos become available on YouTube. So it updating. So that dynamic YouTube corpus is necessary because it underlies my um, computer assisted language learning tool called Edubstrip. Uh, there is a website for that. And so building that YouTube video and uh, corpus, and I have another YouTube video corpus for analyzing the language features of YouTube videos. Because I think I am so fond of YouTube because um, because it is very accessible. It's then like because people up, keep uploading new materials on YouTube, so the materials stay stays fresh all the time. And when we teach learners, uh, when we ask learners to hey, uh, you don't have enough exposure to English outside the English classroom that you talk about. Um, this is what we oppose that we face. What you have to do is to uh, increase your exposure to English outside the classroom. What can you do? You can go to YouTube and watch the videos. You could watch movies. You can listen to songs and so on. Uh, so, so you 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 talk about exposure as in uh, hearing and and seeing the language that you're you're learning around you, and you know mapping onto as you said. You know, what is it that's so successful about first language learning is that um, usually parents and, and caregivers are are providing the, the material, right, <laughs> that that informs the, yeah. the language learning of the infant. Similarly, yeah. with, with YouTube, um, tell us more about Idioms Tube. So so how, how does this work? Is it um, running from the, the, the subtitles or the captions to, to get the, the data? What, what, what happens with the videos and... If someone were to to log in, um, yeah. what would what would they be able to do with that tool? Um. So, <laughs> I would love to comment on like the use of YouTube as a learning resource and also as a spoken corpus. Yeah. And I and I also like when you mentioned when you asked the questions, I was also trying to like it like it reminds me of uh, a quote. From my uh, from Professor Ronald Carter, and he said that our first language learners of English have exposed are exposed to spoken input ninety percent of the time. Ten percent of the time they listen to English. They they are exposed to English through the written. Mm, okay. Then, like later on, I think. I wrote a paper saying that in Hong Kong, for example, where English is spoken as a foreign language, we really spend 90% of the time being exposed to English written input and only 10% of the time we get to hear the sounds of English. So that's, that's a major difference. But then for idiomship, what I'm trying to do is to adjust the balance so that in Hong Kong, like in parts of Asia, we won't get like only 10% exposure to spoken English. And I was hoping that we could decrease the exposure to maybe 30% of the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because literally, uh, when you walk out of the university campus in Hong Kong, very rarely you get the chance to speak English with anyone. Like you see signs everywhere. Uh, everyone's good at like comprehension, like listening comprehension in English, but then 
people have got trust to really use the language spoken. Uh, so idioms trip, what it does is when people log in, they can search for uh, topics that interest them. It could be football, it could be baking, it could be anything. Uh, and then the tool would go live to uh, YouTube and extract uh, videos that are English captioned uh, on that specific topic. And then it will scan the YouTube videos in terms of its difficulty. Like some YouTube videos are just too difficult in terms of nexus, too difficult words that are too difficult beyond the proficiency level of this. Mm. And there are videos which are too fast, like the speaker speaking so fast that learners could not understand, possibly. So we try to estimate the difficulty level, classical difficulty level and the speech rate of the videos before uh, and then we later all the information in front of the learners when we present a window of maybe 50 videos for people to choose from on the topics of baking and football. And then they could uh, check out the videos and then they will be shown a list of uh, noteworthy idiomatic expressions and vocabulary items that they can learn from that particular video. And then after watching the video, uh, my idiom tool would generate, would extract lines, concordancy as you would, like, as we understand it. Like I would generate concordances of those noteworthy vocabulary in the videos and then ask people to do fill in the blanks and to Yeah, just like we represent the code for the sign in, in the window and then people have to fill in what they thought they heard and then they get tips, they could go back to the exact same moment when that idiom or the correct expression was used. Mm -hmm. uh, if they forget what the correct answer may be. And then I've also built it by speaking practices so people could practice pronouncing their idioms, their phonetic expressions. Because I think, like, based on my um, hypothesis, um, by speaking, articulating the sounds of phonetic expressions really does help with memory um, mm. of the expressions. So there is speaking, there is filling the blanks, there is also uh, spelling. People remember the form of the expressions. Yeah. Wow. And so it, that, that's incredible. That's incredible. So how, um, so someone log, logs in and said, you know, I'm interested in, um, I don't know, uh, pop, pop music or football or, or something. And it, and it does, how long does it take before it comes back and go, okay, here's all the idioms, here's the, the concordance lines, here's the, you know, all, all these resources about the language in these videos. 10 seconds. 10, 10, 10 seconds. Wow, yes. that's in, that is that is yeah, that's incredible. If, yeah. uh, and if people, um, you know, sort of, sort of fed back, I suppose, and 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 told told you about how they how they're using it and and if it's helping them. During the pandemic, many schools used my like local schools. Uh, there are a few schools abroad as well, uh, but because there were class sessions, um, everyone was doing Zoom classes and the teachers still wanted the students to get some exposure to English outside the classroom. They gave, uh, they assigned the students to use YouTube daily. Um, as well. And because I thought with YouTube, I've got an interface 
facility developed for teachers so that they could monitor the students who has done the idioms who has done like who has watched which video and which idioms have been learned by the class as a whole and which which idioms have like do people have constant problems with and then like they were like like there there is a page of analysis analytics for teachers anyway and then so I was trying to do multi-multiple coordinating as well with the YouTube like, because I thought, okay, it's, instead of just presenting the line, uh, like uh, presenting the original line in the YouTube videos. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Allow people to hear. Yes. things. Yeah. 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 That's a more challenging task, I I, I imagine. Um, yeah, aligning yeah. the 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 transcript to the the yeah. video. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's uh, like I've been trying to use YouTube as a spoken corpus, but with spoken corpus because I think, like, because YouTube deals with the time corpus, they are time aligned, so it saves the chance of. Like, it's a great help anyway with, but mm. because of the time alignment. But however, it is that are the time codes in, in YouTube caption and. Remember, like YouTube caption could be uploaded by users, or it could be they could be automatically generated. So there are accuracy problems, there are standardization problems. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I was I was going to ask. Of course, like, a lot of it is is automated, and, and also I suppose that a challenge is that you're you're not really able to control for varieties of English, and and yeah. maybe in some contexts learners are trying to learn a particular variety whether you know mm -hmm. british or american or, or or any or any or or maybe you know more broadly it, it doesn't matter so much but i think it's it's a really um it's a brilliant tool i think it's a it's a great idea um and i love i because it's personalized you know you can personalize it you can you know whatever you're interested in we know that you know that that aids with with motivation if students are able to choose things that they personally like so I think it's 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 a great example of of an application, you know, of, of corpus linguistics, which of course is what we're what we're all about on on the podcast. Um, we'll we'll start to 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 wrap things up uh, yeah. as we we come to to a close. But I do want to ask you about something that you're you're working on uh, at the moment. I believe one of your your current projects, um, trying to, as I understand it, predict. The, the the learnability of um i believe a set of over 40,000 uh, yeah. <laughs> um formulaic expressions so what what is what is this uh learnability and 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 how are you how are you working on trying to to predict this yeah in in corpus linguistics and in formulaic language research a major problem that we encounter is that we haven't got a list of items that, like, we haven't got a formulaic language syllabus, even though we have been saying for the past 40 years how important formulaic expressions are for second-hand journals. So, so do you mean similar, similar to, like, a like a I know there's, you know, the general service list, for instance, yeah. of <laughs> the most common individual words in, in, in a language that should be learned. Is it a similar idea, but, but trying to do that with, the formulaic expression. Right, we have whitelist. We have the G at yes. list. We have academic whitelist, yeah. but we haven't got a formulaic language list. So while we're thinking, 
to all teachers that like we we have to sort out learn as well with learning for expressions. We actually haven't done anything or much enough things for them. Mm. There are of course shorter lists of expressions, uh, but they are like not enough, not long enough to make a syllabus to help us to systematically teach uh, a bit of expressions uh, across maybe ten years to learners of English. So what this learnability is, you know. With the with the academic workness and with um, like whole nations uh, workness, um, the thing is that in the past people have been ranking uh, like a priority, deciding the priority of teaching which word based on how frequent they are. Yeah, yeah. In common linguistics, we believe in frequency, uh, but then I think. Frequency is important, but not the only criteria. So in this learnability idea, the learnability idea actually incorporates a range of factors, uh, like semantic transparency, intelligibility, the length of the expression, word association, like are there words associated within the expression? For example, king of the castle. King of the castle, icing on the cake, like these items should presumably be easier to remember than like expressions in which there are no word associates. For example, kill two birds with one stone. Birds, stone, kill, not yeah. associate. So learnability is a range of those factors that I believe would affect how easy it is to learn and are, are there are there phonological elements too? So I know that's that's another thing that you're you're interested in. You you mentioned King of the Castle. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a semantic associate, but because you've got the same consonant, King of the Castle, is that does that help with with remembering or learning as well? There's a very good point, and I should have included it in the next research. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I just know I I you know I I I know from your work that that phonology is it is another thing that you're sort of integrating with your, your corpus work, which I think is really interesting too. Yeah. So anyway, with this, with the current version of the Vectability Index, I've got five factors in, one of which is frequency. And in that project, in this current project that I'm working on, so I've got, I've like counting the frequency of formulaic expressions is such a, an impossible task. It's, impossible and i've been trying to solve the problem i've been trying to solve the problem for years and i figured out how to do it recently like it's it's not 100 percent watertight the method but it helps so i've been trying to use uh google books apps oh yeah. okay yeah because like in order to count the frequency of formal expressions in corpus we need a not a Large corpus for the mega corpus. Mm. <laughs> like Google Books, Google Books and has got billions of words. So that corpus is large enough for me to yes. the frequency of 40,000 for me And that's exactly what I did. But it was such a tedious process. <laughs> I, I can imagine you're, you're right. I was going to ask the data for this sort of task is, is going to have to be a huge uh, data set. I was imagining, you know, something like the the N1010 uh, yeah. corpora that are these huge uh, internet 
culture of bil- billions and billions of words as well. Um, and so you you take this this list and you apply the the features that you mentioned there that that help you work out uh, learnability. Um, okay. Expression. And then I apply the, because I do statistics modeling as well, so I came with a statistical model of validity based on, like, which involves the five factors. And I, once I developed that statistical model, I mapped it onto the 40,000 items. And then I have a list of 40,000 for expressions of rage in ascending order, in ascending order of validity, ready to find it to some kind of for language proficiency tests. Some kind of for my language syllabi. And do you, I'm putting you on the spot here, uh, but what is the most learnable? What's number one uh, at the top of the list? The most learnable formulaic expression? Probably something. Yeah. Like, surprise, because I'm just like, like, I, I use a small sample in my experiment. So the item that was most learnable. To Hong Kong learners of English uh, was uh, or is uh, as as a matter of fact. Oh wow! Okay, as a matter of fact. Okay, yeah. there you yeah. go. There's a, a tip for for people watching or listening. That's if you're well, going to learn anything in English, then you need to learn as a matter of fact. I think <laughs> should be with the easiest items, like the most learnable items, and then work their way down. To the more difficult. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, once you've learned all forty thousand of them, you you get a Wait. get a medal or a, a prize from from Phoebe Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll become a Nobel Prize winner. Like, like I don't, I haven't got anyone knowing all forty thousand expressions yet because I've been like I've been asking like you have with this. Yeah, like, like I was trying to find uh, British learners of. That first language, uh, I'm tr- I was trying to find first language speakers, British English speakers, to fill in my surveys. Oh, and yes, I remember you when you were yeah, in the program. Yes, yes, yeah. People from different ages would tend to use or would tend to know different expressions. And some expressions are definitely very archaic that younger people would not know. So, yeah. I didn't think, I, I'm not suggesting people should learn all 40, like, levels of English, second language of English should learn all 40,000 expressions because that's not necessary. Uh, and, like, first language, native speakers of English don't know that many expressions either. Mm. So it's more of a, a, a very useful kind of uh, insight um, and a guide, I suppose, to, uh, you know, knowing more about what this is all about, really, that the fact that so much of language is uh, chunks of, of of units of words rather than individual words. This is really fascinating. I, I wish we could we could talk more and more about this because it's it's really interesting. It's so fun as well to to hear the the passion and 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 excitement that you you have about you know the, this this work that you're doing. It's clearly something that um, you're you're really sort of uh, passionate about. We're, we're going to start to to wrap up now with um, maybe the, the, the segment of the episode that the guests dread a little bit. Um, <laughs> my uh, quick questions. Um, yes. So now it's time for Dr. Phoebe Lynn uh, to sit in the hot seat. I wish we could like have some dramatic lighting or some music or something. I might have to ask Sam, uh, our producer, whether we can uh, 
Like, <laughs> the production values have a sound effect or something. Yeah, he's probably sat there going, oh, no, not more work. Please stop rubbing. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I heard something there. I don't know what that was. Um, oh, we're... It... Oh, oh listen to that. Can you hear that? Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Okay, okay, okay. Let's go with it. Um, not quite the... the, the... I was thinking something a bit more like... Um, bit more bit more dramatic but we'll, we'll go with it we'll let him play in the background um quick <laughs> quick <laughs> he's uh he's having fun now. I, I i regret this already okay this will do this will do we'll go with this okay um sorry phoebe you're you're apparently that you know that you're being tested on, on here with this music quick question number one <laughs> Uh, what is the biggest change you've noticed in corpus research in your career? I was, I was two, not just one. Like, like the biggest change now is ChatGPT. Ah. And okay. yeah. I don't want to talk about ChatGPT. Another option I would say is the multiple quantity corpus linguistics. Uh huh. Okay. Because when I learned corpus linguistics, it was more like analyzing concordance lines. And now we are moving towards more statistical approaches to analyze yeah. uh, yes. indices and so on. Something that makes me increasingly nervous because I, I struggle sometimes with the, the highly uh, statistical or programmatic aspects of, of the work that um, some people do in corpus linguistics. Yeah. Oh, it's, a lot yeah. of it goes over my head. Um, <laughs> all these new things and like we all like in corpus linguistics but because like it's so like the, the discipline is so close to technology hmm. that like i often find myself constantly needing to learn something new and um yeah and including like quality corpus linguistics like there are some new indices that i was not aware of and hmm. like, always, like googling like how to solve problems and so on yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad I'm not not, not the only one. Um, okay, quick question number two. Um, what is the biggest uh, misconception of corpus linguistics that you've encountered? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, most of my students, like when I say, hey, I'm your corpus linguistics teacher this year, they will say, oh, sorry, I'm so worried about everything. Like they thought they needed to be proficient in computing in order to be a corpus linguist. Mm. That's not really true because there are many great tools that get people started to corpus linguistics. One of the tools that I recommend, I always teach the use of the matrix, for example, right? Students use it all the time for their projects, for their dissertations. Like you don't need to be like the misconception is people think that they need to be excellent at using computers in order to be uh, to do corpus linguistics research, which is totally not true. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There are I, I many think... levels of corpus linguistics, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, and I think that the thing that's that's much more important is um, understanding language, you know, yeah, understanding exactly. linguistics. Um, that That's, I think, the the main prerequisite for for getting into to corpus linguistics so we're in agreement there um finally um before i uh uh bring you the the, the relief i suppose of, of uh, coming to the end of the episode um final quick question how uh do you think uh corpus linguistics will make an impact on the world in the future where where is where is this going you know what what is there left to do and 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 
what is corpus linguistics going to do in the future? I think corpus linguistics is a big thing. Um, with like, like we may not realize it, but like it is happening because all the things like I like to say like because in the modern world we leave many digital traces, and then like those, uh, like one of the digital traces that we leave is text data, and mm. lots of people to get discover patterns behind the text data. And there are many uses of such text data. And this is the work, this is where corpus linguistics comes in, I think. Yeah. Because that will only increase, continue to increase more and more textual uh, traces of human existence, I suppose. Yeah, it's it, like the, the analysis of, like, the analysis of digital traces will show, would allow us to develop tools that help make life easier, more efficient, more handy, convenient. And then yeah. from a research point of view, we, we also want to know how people, like from a sociolinguistic, from a sociology point of view, sociological point of view, we also want to know like how do people live their lives and what do people like to do. Of mm. course, not to mention like such data will have huge implications for marketing, for mm. commercial purposes. But then like, just even as a sociology research topic, analyzing digital traces is interesting. Like, especially like these days, we gener generate so much YouTube data, we generate so much like chat data and video conferencing data. Mm -hmm. Such data will have huge potential, commercial potential and research potential. And it's exciting. I think, I think, I think, um, like I'm biased, of course, but I think corpus linguistics is the future of linguistics. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like that. Wow. I wait to, to to end with a, a bold proclamation. That's what I, that's what I like to hear. Um, thank you so thank much, Phoebe. This has been really really interesting. It's it's been great to to get to know you a bit more and and what you're doing and 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 your your brilliant and and you know very very exciting research in 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 this area and that you have such a, a an optimism and excitement about the future of of what 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 this can do so um thank you so much and and of course thank you as always to you this is where i very unnaturally break the fourth wall and stare into my camera again people who are watching us on youtube or, or listening uh on spotify google podcasts podcast addict chaser and all the other pod websites whatever they are um why not subscribe and and let us know what you what you think um however you're you're accessing uh, corpus cast um and and you can always uh talk about it on twitter or maybe even mastodon these days using the hashtag corpus cast um make sure to uh check out the Aston corpus linguistics research group on twitter at Aston corpus and you can follow me at love a mob um, Corpuscast is an Aston Originals podcast, uh, written and hosted by me, Robbie Love, and produced by my excellent uh, colleague, who um, probably has too many buttons at his disposal to play sound effects that I didn't know he had, Sam Cook. Um, and uh, all that's left for me to do is to uh, thank our guest once again, Dr. Phoebe Lin from Hong Kong Polytechnic University. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robbie and Sam.